In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May this arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening. Um, hold on a second. I got to check with uh, Emily here about whether to record on the computer or the cloud. Great. All good. And in that case, should have paused recording. Oh, well, it's just us. doesn't matter. <laughs> hey, good evening. Welcome. losing my uh, near-sightedness. Yes, ma'am. I wanted to share something um, that I'm sort of discovering with my other studies, that I'm having this crossover, which I find so nice. And um, I think I mentioned to you that I'm working with vivid awareness and so on Mondays, um, we're on chapter, uh, let's see, what is the name of it? It's chapter six, Appearances and Mind. And so it was so related to this. And then I have another group where we're studying the Heart Sutra. And we were uh, finding the no, no eyes, no ear, no nose, no tongue, you know, this... Um, all these things pointing to the understanding of emptiness. And so it's really kind of gelling is really a nice uh, process to have that crossover. So this is good. Thank you. That's great. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. So in the Vivid Awareness book, the, the chapter you want, what does it go through? The, the four types of objects? Or the conditions, the four conditions, causal conditions. You know, it, it's hard for me to speak to it, but it was giving clear um, examples, sort of, as this reading did as well, about, um, I, I think that, the the sense the consciousness now now I'm speaking to this book instead of 
our books. So, um, but they were saying that this was saying um, that the ear sense is blind and the, the, so I don't know how to really talk about it very well, but it, it that's was, neat. <laughs> Yeah, you'll see. Well, uh, you'll see it. It come this this material. The classifications of mental states of different types of cognition will come up frequently. And um, speaking of examples like that, I'm reading through this extremely profound text by Longchenpa, probably his most uh, profound text, with a few friends and. Uh, it's all Dzogchen, and in the, in the first chapter he goes through how, how confusion arises, and he goes through the four conditions and the, the six causes, and <laughs> it was amazing. And they, they were all asking me, like, what, what is this scheme? And, and then he goes through the mental factors, and so I was showing them charts from, the, from our material here of the different causes and conditions and uh, mind and mental factors. So it shows up all over the place and um, it creates a very clear and accurate way of understanding how our mind is working, which is in the Buddhist tradition and in particularly the Tibetan Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions is the essential first step before meditation traditionally you would have to understand the framework of mind and on that basis then you would meditate because basically you're meditating on your mind obviously you're meditating with your mind but you're also meditating on your mind and and you're trying to you know going back to the four reliances rely on the teaching not the teacher the word the sense not the words the definitive meaning, not the provisional, and wisdom, not consciousness. It's very important to, to understand what wisdom is as different than consciousness. And that's not immediately evident, but that will come out over time through this material in a, in a I think, a clear way. So... Thank you for that. Yeah, people, uh, folks, uh, it'd be great if you find it coming up in other readings you're doing. Please share that. That's cool. That's neat. So from there, let's go into, we're on chapter two. And this is part one of the book, Science and, just kidding. <laughs> Giving uh, Cynthia the coordinates. So for us, it's page 49 sense consciousness versus uh, the first section is sense consciousness versus mental consciousness they're they're having an argument there's six categories of consciousness i.e. or nose tongue and body consciousness plus mental consciousness the first five are sense each of which arises in dependence on a physical sense faculty that is its own uncommon dominant condition so that's the first of four conditions that we'll see the dominant condition. And I've rattled these off before. And uh, I should circulate. I made a little simple chart for my buddies in this long chenpa thing. And I think it would be helpful for us here as well. 
So let's see. This is what I just circulated, and this is what we're going through here. And as I tried to go through in the in the first class where I did a review of the collected topics material, sort of ran through all these different ways of looking at objects that are listed in the collected topics material but in the collected topics we focused mostly on this objects classified in terms of entity things non-things matter mind mental factors non-associated formations if you remember and we just sort of went very quickly through classified in terms of function causes and causes are classified in a number of different ways entity, direct, indirect, terminologically, and then this. And this, what's called here a subclassified terminologically as conditions, is what you'll find is the most common framework that's used subsequently in the Buddhist tradition for understanding cognition. So he's starting now with the dominant condition. So he says, the, or they say, the first five are the sense consciousnesses, each of which arises in dependence on a physical sense faculty that is its own uncommon dominant condition. The eye sense faculty is the dominant condition of the eye sense consciousness and so forth. The last of the six consciousnesses is the mental consciousness which arises in dependence on the mental sense faculty that is its dominant condition form is perceived by the eye consciousness sound by the ear smell by the nose etc the five sense consciousnesses uh sorry i'll stop this guy the five sense consciousnesses arise through the functioning of their respective dominant condition and so the idea Dominant, uh, this, this is how I try to remember these four. Dominant condition is the, is the sense base, and that dominates the experience. If, it, if an experience happens through the eye sense faculty, the eye sense faculty is in charge. It's dominating the, the, the experience. So that's called the dominant condition. Um, the five sense consciousnesses arise through the function of their respective dominant conditions, the five sense faculties, and through their respective objective conditions, the five sense objects of form, and so on. Objective condition. Object condition. What's the object of the cognition? The object serves as the objective condition of a cognition. The object, what's the object of a visual cognition? A visual object. Oh, color, right. color and shape. Color and shape. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was getting to that next. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so color and shape. And uh, 
Then it says the uncommon dominant condition. So again, this weird language, uncommon. What do they mean, uncommon? Uncommon here means it's not common to the other five sense consciousnesses. E each one has an, its own uncommon and un sorry, <laughs> uncommon dominant condition. So the uncommon dominant condition of the mental consciousness, that's different than the others, and each one has their own uncommon dominant condition, um, is the mental sense faculty. What is the mental sense faculty? Thinking. That's the activity of the mental sense faculty. What is the mental sense faculty that thinks? What is it that thinks? Mind. The mind. The mind, exactly. That's the sixth mental sense. That's the sixth uh, sense faculty. Um, but it's not a physical sense faculty. Right, the mind is non-physical. It, it's not composed of uh, partless particles, which also, by the way, Longchenpa in this text on Dzogchen talks about the partless particles. All of a sudden, he says, like the ground emerges and empty lumino luminosity is then <clears throat> captured in the form of the partless particle body, <laughs> and we were all like, "What?" <laughs> So, this is the precious treasury of genuine meaning, the Tsikdunza. Okay. So anyway, you'll see this coming up, come up all over. This will be extremely helpful background. Therefore, a distinction is made between the sense consciousnesses, the first five, and the mental, from the point of view of their uncommon dominant conditions, their sense bases. He gives some quotes, which I'll skip. And then he says on the next page, 50, so after the quote, sense consciousness and mental consciousness are not named from the point of view of their objects, but from the point of view of their uncommon dominant conditions. And he gives this example about drums and drumsticks and stuff, but uh, basically, instead of saying color consciousness, we say visual consciousness or eye consciousness. And that's the, that's the significance of this. To give some other examples, when you view a garden containing many types of flowers, even though there are different kinds of flowers in that garden, they appear to your eye consciousness as a single mass. If the mind cognitively selects a particular variety of flower and apprehends it, that cognition has now gone beyond the bounds of sense consciousness and has entered the domain of mental consciousness. Now, this is a statement that is not like uh, universally acceptable in my humble, naive opinion, because you can focus in on certain flowers and then have a sense consciousness of those. But they're talking about the act of excluding some and separating out others from a group of um, sense objects. Also, is it, is it because I'm, I'm sorry, is it because he says that it, the mind cognitively selects a that's it, particular the variety, yes. that's what makes it mind as opposed to senses. If you just hear, uh, zoomed in on a blue, uh, a particular blue thing, 
you know, without thinking that's a Dahlia or whatever, I'm just making that up. It that's would correct. not could stay sensory. That's correct. Thank you. That is 100% correct, I believe. Um, also, if visible form appears to eye consciousness at the same time as a melodious sound appears to ear consciousness, then the object <clears throat> toward which an inclination, and uh, this term inclination, does, uh, deserves better explanation, but I think we'll get to it later when we go through which aspect of this whole system mental factors uh, the wish to hear or wish to see is more strongly habituated will be the only object that the sense consciousness comes to apprehend and determine on that occasion so he's they're saying that uh, um, if there's a visual con visual sense object and uh, a, melod a melodious sound appears to our ear consciousness. There's a, a mental factor called inclination that determines which one of them will be um, apprehended and determined on that basis. So apprehended is uh, conceptually or let's say cognitively focused on and determined would be uh, then when it becomes uh, conceptually identified, let's say. But this that whole description is a little bit vague and disputable, and which which raises the uh, the issue that um, all of this material is meant for you to think carefully and clearly and analytically about what's happening and apply all of your knowledge to the situation of what your experience is. We have this presentation being presented to, you know, this version rather being presented to us, and it may not be 100% accurate. And there's no reason to just accept it just because that's what they said, just because it's written down. It's got to be true, <laughs> as uh, that famous comedian says. Um, so the way modern neuroscience works is that there's like zillions of sense impressions going on all at the same time in all of our five senses. And this mental factory he's calling, they are calling inclination, directs our attention from one to another. But the others are registering and that's proven by hypnosis where people can be hypnotized and then uh, they can describe things that are way beyond the capability of their normal waking consciousness to have experience such as how many telephone poles they pass on the on the walk on their walk from home to work um, you know details about their sensory experience that that proves that they they registered that sensory information in their minds, but they didn't cog they didn't like have their focused attention on it. So, uh, if I were to to comment on this, I would revise that in this way. But uh, something for you to think about and see what is what is the accurate situation that happens. Um, in this way, 
Those inclinations, wishing to hear, wishing to see, are forms of mental consciousness. So those are transferred into mental consciousness. And we're going to get into that whole process and issue shortly. And that's the crux of these two chapters, because it is an extremely important and complicated process. All kinds of things can appear to the mental consciousness, as opposed to the limitation with, with sense consciousness is, is only their specific uh, set of um, objects can appear to those consciousnesses, such as color and shape for visual consciousness. But for mental consciousness, all sorts of different things of different types, past and future events, concepts, designations, and so on things which cannot appear to sense consciousnesses when a present object such as a blue such as blue manifestly appears to the eye consciousness if the mind does not attend to it such as through the wish to see blue then that eye consciousness will not realize that it is blue even though the blue clearly appears to that eye consciousness on the other hand, if the mind focuses on it, then that eye consciousness can induce the ascertainment. This is blue. This is another um, fine point of like, you know, basically we're, we're looking at the skandhas, right? So you have the form skanda, you have feeling, you have the third skanda, perception, discrimination, um, sometimes translated as um, cognition. And um, the third skanda is said to have two parts to it. One is just the um, identification, non-conceptual, non-verbal identification of an object, that of, of form that has been felt and then identified. And then the second aspect of the third skanda is a subtle level of uh, classification that's not a conceptual labeling which happens in the fourth skanda but it's uh, it's uh, it's not totally uh, universally accepted where the labeling occurs and whether the third skanda has these two parts that's not uh, necessarily explained in all traditions. And so what they're saying here um, begs your introspection of like, what is your actual experience? If the mind focuses on it, then the eye consciousness can in induce the ascertainment this is blue. So can an eye consciousness conclude like this is blue? Or does that happen in the mental consciousness? We, uh, I think, I would say that happens in the mental consciousness. Um, but, you know, uh, to some extent, it's the wording, you know, induces the ascertainment, this is blue. It's in words, so I'm interpreting it as like a labeling. And uh, what they're trying to express is the second aspect of that third skanda of it identifies it as blue, but it doesn't like have a conceptual verbal labeling process. Anyway, also when your eye consciousness is looking at a form, your mind may be distracted some, towards some other objects. However, while your eye consciousness is in contact with the form that is its object, it is indeed aware of that form. But from that awareness, any cognition of that object as good or bad can only be a mere consciousness. 
uh, sorry, a mental consciousness. So the sense consciousnesses don't uh, experience past, future uh, designations, concepts of good and bad, big and small, and so on and so forth. Um, as in an Abhidharma, as in an Abhidharma treatise, also Dignaga's Compendium of Valid Cognition Auto Commentary says someone with eye consciousness cognizes blue, but does not think this is blue. So that's um, that's their way of presenting this aspect of the third skanda. That, that sentence sounds like it's a slight difference from the one. It above. is. It's it is. It's the way I just explained the, yeah. the third skanda, not the way the the other sentence implied. That's, that's exactly what I was right. Yeah. yeah. So it's unclear. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting that they present that quote as support of what they just said. Right. But the way it's said implies. But, so, do, I mean, but I'm sorry, just to revisit the word ascertainment, do we fully understand what is meant by that word? Uh, where is because ascertainment? It's like putting it, whether it puts it on the side of. Where is it? Uh, in the oh well, I mind. Oh, induce the ascertainment. Yeah. See, that's really the crux of it. Is is that on the sense side or on the mental side? Yeah. Well, we'll have to wait until they, we get to that section of the mental factors where we go through those different aspects of cognition. Yeah. And and exactly, I agree with you 100. percent That is the crux. Is like, what do they mean by ascertainment? The sense consciousness is totally dependent on there being an external object of focus nearby, and they can arise only through the functioning of the objective conditions, such as, you know, if there's if there's no light, if you're in a dark room, or you, you don't see colors, unless you consider black to be a color, um, they can only arise through the functioning of the objective condition, their own observed object. But the mental consciousness need not depend on the presence of external observed objects. So although an eye consciousness seeing a flower will not arise if there's no flower to be to be the observed object, the mental consciousness perceiving a flower can still arise through remembering, I would say, and conceiving it even when no flower is in the vicinity. And he gives some quotes to support this, which I'll skip. The first excerpt says that since a sense consciousness arises through the causal capacity of its observed object. So going to our four main types of conditions, there's the causal condition, which interestingly they're presenting here as the presence of the object near the, the sense base. And in this whole presentation, and, and you'll see in a couple of pages, they're going to focus in on three out of these four and not talk about the causal condition, which is very weird, I think. Um, but we'll, we'll, get, we'll touch on that when we get to it. But okay, so we have the causal condition. We talked about the dominant condition is the sense base. The object condition is the color or shape. Causal condition is the presence of color and shape uh, in the vicinity of an eye consciousness. 
and we're going to get soon to the last one immediately preceding condition um so the first excerpt says that since the sense consciousness arises through the causal capacity <clears throat> excuse me of its observed object it cannot apprehend its object in a manner that associates words and their reference reference means what refer words refer to the word flower refers to a flower <laughs> and so forth the second quote says that a conceptual cognition does not depend on the proximity of an observed object's causal capacity and that it apprehends its object without necessarily ascertaining the universal of an object that has been apprehended by a sensory perception. So, uh, let's see. Let's go, let's go back and read the quote. Second quote, uh, both are from Dharma Kirti's Ascertainment of Valid Cognition. And by the way, these two texts that they've referred to on this page, on top Dignaga's Compendium of Valid Cognition, the auto-commentary, is in Sanskrit, the Pramana Samuchaya, S-A-M-U-C-C-A-Y-A. Compendium of Valid Cognition. Pramana is Valid Cognition. Samuchaya is Compendium. So that's the first big, profound main text on logic, because Dignaga lived like a hundred years or so before Dharmakirti. And then Dharmakirti's text, Ascertainment of Valid Cognition, is Pramana again, and then Vartika. V-A-R-T-T-I-K-A -T -T or something like that. <laughs> and those are the two main texts in the uh, Pramana tradition. He'll quote some others, but I thought it was worth pointing out those two. So the quote says, conceptual cognition is a mental consciousness. So those are synonymous. Mental consciousness. Uh, sorry, no. What is the relationship between conceptual cognition and mental consciousness? Are they identical? Are they exclusive? Are they overlapping? Or does one fit within the other? The last one you said. Right, Mary Beth. Conceptual cognition is a type of mental consciousness. What what other what other types of mental consciousness are there? Well, the I has a mental consciousness. We don't usually it? say it that way, but what you're saying is basically correct: is that the mental consciousness has the capacity to uh, directly have a direct cognition of an I cognition. So mental consciousness has both conceptual and non-conceptual cognitive capability. So it has both those types. Um, so conceptual cognition is a type of mental consciousness. It arises without depending on the proximity of a causally efficient object, such as the proximity of a color and shape in the vicinity of an eye sense space. 
uh, through the latent potencies for that conceptualization, latent potencies being the uh, prior understanding of the uh, universal, which is a general idea of that object. So in this case, we could say flowers. We have an idea of what flowers are, and we come to that idea by excluding everything that's not a flower, and we come up with this general concept of flowers, which is called a universal, or a general idea, or a generally characterized phenomenon, all of which are synonymous terms. It apprehends an object that is not restricted to a sense faculty, and it does so through some relation to a sense faculty, either together or separately. So it, it is not restricted to a sense faculty, although the implication by saying it's not restricted is that it could include cognition of a sense cognition but it's not restricted to that, but it is based on prior sense experience. And together or separately would be um, the senses, various senses together or separately. And based upon prior sense direct cognition of flowers, like their color, their shape, their smell, their texture, we come up with an idea, a general idea the universal of what a flower is. And then we're able to call that forth without the presence of a flower, Cynthia. Is this saying that all conceptual cognitions at, trace back at some point to a sensory one? Yes, they are. There's no such ultimate. thing as purely cognitive. Like that, has, that has uh, no basis in sense cognition is impossible. All conceptual cognition is ultimately based on fact. It can be distortion of fact and we'll About see, memory or something like that. So we'll see in this reading that there's two right. types of conceptual cognition based on whether the referent is an existent or not. And we'll see our favorite example come up hopefully soon. Okay, so um Going back to the commentary below it, the second sentence, the second excerpt uh, says that the con a conceptual cognition does not depend on the proximity of an observed object's causal capacity, which is a technical way of saying the presence of an actual flower in the vicinity of an eye-sense conscious faculty, and that it apprehends its object without necessarily ascertaining the universal of an object that has been apprehended by a sensory perception. So here the, they're actually highlighting a different capability, which is what uh, Mary Beth indicated earlier, is that the mental sense faculty also has the capacity to directly cognize, i.e. non-conceptually, so direct and non-conceptual are synonymous, the object of the five sense faculties, the five other sense faculties. Through these points, one can clearly understand the difference between sense and conceptual mental consciousness. In brief, when experiential consciousness engages an object such as a visible form or sound, 
It does so in one of two ways, primarily in relation to the body or primarily in relation to the mind. In the former, the consciousness is called sense consciousness and the latter, mental consciousness. For example, on the basis of a sense consciousness seeing a form, hearing a sound, and so on, a mental consciousness evaluates the object as in it's this or it's like this, and so on. When the eyes are closed, the eye consciousness remains inactive, but the mental consciousness is still present and engaged with its object. Sorry, with uh, yeah, with its object, which could have been. Yes. No, finish your sentence, I'm sorry. Which could have been the object of the visual sense consciousness from the moment before. Yeah, I what I had this question actually before you read those two sentences, and it's sort of the same question is that it is the object of the mental sense consciousness actually it's not really the same object as that of the sense consciousness, because isn't it really the what do they call it, aspect or um that whereas the let's say the eye is perceiving the blue flower their mind and, is uh, they're actually identical in, in this system they're both seeing the aspect of the objective uh condition they're both seeing the aspect okay because essentially that means that consciousness is never really seeing the real thing at all if there is a real thing right we haven't got to that whole part yet okay all right, so, so we're the, just the, setting up the functionality of the senses, and then we'll go through the different types of object, the appearing object, the referent, and the apprehended object. And the appearing a, a object is what you're calling the aspect. Okay. So we'll get there. <laughs> Uh, let's see, when the eyes are closed, the eye consciousness remains inactive, but the mental consciousness is still present and can engage with its object. Similarly, although sense consciousness does not operate during the dream state, even in the dream state, the concept-based mental consciousness can engage in various activities, such as undergoing experiences that are feelings of pleasure, pain, and so on. As their own experience demonstrates that there are two kinds of consciousness, sense and mental. Indeed, many types of cognitive events must be understood primarily in terms of mental consciousness, as in the following examples. For instance, thoughts such as, there are flowers over there, and these are flowers, apprehend merely the entities themselves. And uh, I think we can get the point they're trying to make, but the way that they present this example is not a thoroughly convincing one, at least to myself. But it's just a simple identification of the object. Um, and then thoughts like these flowers smell sweet principally apprehend the object's distinctive attributes. So um, he's they're giving an uh, Types of, it says, indeed, many types of cognitive events must be understood principally in terms of mental consciousness, as in the following examples. There are flowers over there. These are flowers apprehend merely the entities themselves. Thoughts like these are sweet, apprehend the object's distinctive attributes. Likewise, thoughts may involve 
a mind seen beautiful flowers in a dream, a reflection of flowers seen earlier, or a cognition that apprehends flowers, even when the eyes are closed. There are also emotions such as fear, love, or torment. There are also afflictive mental states such as pride, hatred, attachment, and their converse too, such as the meditative states of calm, abiding, special insight, and so on. All of these examples must be construed primarily as instances of mental consciousness. So all of these in this paragraph are mental cognitive experiences, including their flowers over there. These are flowers which apprehend merely the entities themselves. And what, what they're referring to with that sentence is the definition of and the way that the definition of and the way that um, the terms mind and mental factors are separated. The definition of a mind is that which, or sorry, a primary mind is that which identifies the entity of an object. And the definition of mental factors is that which identifies the attributes of objects. So they're saying that first there's the entity identification, which is the first act of mental, a primary mind. There's flowers, and then all the rest are commentaries, which are attributes of the men, uh, that are cognized through the mental factors. Having discussed the difference between sense and mental consciousness, the essential nature of each can now be presented as follows. So they have a whole descriptive way of, of leading us into this uh, very important distinction, and now they'll give the formal definitions. The sense consciousness is defined as a consciousness that depends on a physical sense faculty, that is its uncommon dominant condition. So uncommon meaning not shared by other sense faculties or sense cognitions. A mental consciousness is defined as a consciousness that depends on a mental sense faculty that is its uncommon dominant condition. So this was pretty obvious all along. When sense consciousness is categorized, there are five types, which we know. Um, the second sense of consciousness that depends on the eye sense faculty as its dominant condition is called eye consciousness and so forth for the other consciousnesses down to the end of this paragraph and he gives a supporting quotation from the Samdhinar Mochana Sutra unraveling the intention skipping that likewise the division into a sixfold group of consciousness is clearly taught in these other sutras so uh, they're being very good in citing scriptural sources for the fact that there are six consciousnesses. Mental consciousness, so uh, ment the next paragraph, mental consciousness includes, in addition to the conceptual cognitions, such as we just went through, of uh, the flower smells sweet and there are flowers and so on and so forth, direct mental perceptions that are concept-free and have arisen on the basis of a sense consciousness acting as its immediately preceding condition. It also includes such mental direct perceptions as those that directly realize the truth about a thing's way of being, such as impermanence, on the basis of progressive engagement and learning, reflection, and meditation, whereby what is perceived gradually becomes clearer and clearer. 
as in the case of directly realizing impermanence, there are many examples of mental consciousness that is perceptual. This is one of the most important paragraphs in the entire book, so to go through it a little more carefully, mental consciousness includes two types of cognition. In addition to conceptual cognitions, it also includes direct mental per perceptions that are concept-free and that arise on the basis of sense consciousnesses acting as their immediately preceding condition. So now we have the first incidence of this term immediately preceding as one of the types of conditions as the fourth in this quadrant, whatever, of uh, four types of conditions. Um, <clears throat> So the first moment of mental cognition after uh, mental sense cognition after a, 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 a uh, non-mental sense cognition, which is maybe the only way to, or let's say a sense cognition, sense being the five, eye through uh, body, so the first moment of a mental cognition that uh, comes after a sense cognition is a direct and non-conceptual cognition of that sense cognition. Um, so a mental, con con uh, mental consciousness has these two types, which we talked about earlier with Mary Beth. And then um, in addition to uh, the, the second type, the non-conceptual mental consciousness, has itself two types of objects. One is the uh, immediately preceding sense consciousness, and the other type is the realization of truths such as impermanence. And they say it also includes such direct mental perceptions as those that directly realize the truth about a thing's way of being, such as impermanence. And so these are, um, like if we go back to our collective topics uh, classifications, these are non-associated formations. And so basically the mind is able to uh, non-conceptually cognize these attributes of phenomena by penetrating through them, to them through um, this process of learning, reflection, and meditation, or inferential valid cognition, leading to that direct valid cognition. And this is important because this is the way that we cognize the truth of the nature of reality, which sets us free from samsara, which is that all persons are without a controlling, ongoing, unitary um, agent, and all phenomena are without an intrinsically existing, uh, intrinsic, truly existing entity, i.e. egolessness of self and dharmas, or emptiness. And so emptiness is, under, is experienced initially as a conceptual cognition by the mental consciousness, and then through the process of learning, reflection, and meditation, which are the three types of prajnas, it can go from a conceptual cognition 
to a direct non-conceptual cognition of by the mental consciousness at which point it becomes liberative liberating and one experiences the first moment of the path of seeing in general classical buddhist thinkers have divergent opinions as to whether there exists a type of concept free mental consciousness that arises from a sense consciousness acting as its immediately preceding condition. It's a little bit odd that they presented it as uh, de facto in the paragraph before that there are this there is this type of mental consciousness that arises based on the sense cognition as its immediately preceding condition and it is non-conceptual. And but here they're sort of backing up and saying this is not generally universally accepted um, and like the sense perception takes an external object as its observed object here they clarify something they didn't clarify in the preceding paragraph is that that non-conceptual mental consciousness that has a sense cognition as its immediately preceding condition um, has the external object as its observed object just like the sense cognition, its observed object or its objective condition was the color and, and shape, that first moment of mental cognition that's non-conceptual has the same object or objective condition. That was what I was asking before, right? That That's the... That's right. Thank you. So this is sort of reiterating that yeah well or clarifying it yeah those who assert the existence of such a mental direct perception rely on the following sutra passage you have to have scriptural support amongst the knowledge of material form which is clearly a sense object is of two types one based on the eye and the other on the mental faculty now why is that uh statement and the conclusion they're drawing from it <clears throat> not a hundred percent convincing do you remember in the uh, mary beth is it is it because one kind of depends on the other mm, <clears throat> not entirely it's because there's a, there's a type of form. Remember the list of forms in our, in our Dudra? Let's see if we have the list of, uh, here we go. Collected topics, outline detail. Uh, it's not there. Let's see. Basically, it, 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 let me know if this rings any bells, that there was mental object form. That there was mental form, which consisted of things like the, the form of a vow. And then there was also this whole discussion of how do uh, practitioners of the absorptions create um earth in space that they can walk on 
remember that whole thing in, in volume one that came up? So there is this idea that there's a mental object form. And so this statement by the Buddha saying that uh, knowledge of material form is of two types could be referring to this sort of mental object form as opposed to what's being interpreted here as being that the mental sense faculty can actually cognize the outer objective condition or i.e. object of a sense faculty. They quote from Dharmakirti, a mental consciousness that arises from a sense consciousness acting as the immediately preceding condition and that apprehends the object immediately preceding it is also called direct perception. So here's uh, Dharmakirti's opinion on the matter. This verse says that a mental consciousness that is produced by sense consciousness acting as the immediately preceding condition with the immediately preceding moment of its own object acting as its supporting condition, which means the, the immediately preceding moment of the eye consciousness's, the sense consciousness's object, i.e. the last, the prior moment of a color shape in the case of sense consciousness, is also an instance of direct perception. So this idea that the, that the mental sense faculty has direct perception is a little bit controversial, and, um, or, or it's like a major um, change in view between Vaibhashika, basically, and Sautrantika. And that has a rather huge significance. Then the authors of this book say this passage, passage clearly states that the mental sense that the mental consciousness can be produced when a sense consciousness apprehending something external as its object acts the immediately preceding condition in that case mental consciousness must be posited as a direct perception. So hopefully you're okay with this, getting okay with this, comfortable with this language of. Uh, immediately preceding condition. What's the immediately preceding condition of um, your current uh, mental consciousness as you as you were thinking about what I'm saying? What happened right before? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's you know it's a technical clunky way of saying whatever type of mental consciousness you were experiencing in the moment, just before that and we know that moments we know that moment the term moment is a sort of vague thing but they're referring to the uh, sort of collected topics version of moments which are sort of indivisible units of time just like there's heartless particles because they're basing this on the sautrantika system which is part of the sarvastivadin school and Sarvastivadin means everything exists, those who view that everything exists. So matter exists and mind exists, and they're not Madhyamakans yet. Okay, and that's our foundation where we all sort of agree on, because basically from there you get Chittamatra and Madhyamaka that diverge in a big way in terms of how they interpret things. So they need to identify a common foundational presentation of Buddhist uh, tenets upon which to 
uh, base their differences or their discussion or their debates. Uh, let's see. Can I ask one thing yeah. here? Yeah. Is the mental direct perception like before the concepts kick in? Is it just like that split second of? It is. It is. We've we uh, we've looked at this before. We have like the moments of cognition, and when you have a sense cognition, if you say that there's like, uh, if you trace it moment by moment, you have the immediately preceding condition is um, whatever came before the uh, let's say the visual sense cognition of a color of a blue flower or the color blue and let's say you were listening to music and suddenly a blue flower appears in front of your eyes and so then uh, moment one is the eye, eye cognition of that blue flower and then moment two is the mental and moment one by the way is direct non-conceptual by definition it's a it's a sense consciousness and then moment two is the mental direct perception of the same sense object the blue flower and then moment three is the mental conceptual consciousness that registers oh why is there a blue flower in front yeah. of me so hopefully that helps thank yeah. you for raising Thanks. that uh, let's see, when analyzed precisely, this excerpt says that the very sense consciousness that induces the mental consciousness is both its immediately preceding condition and its dominant condition. The, ment the faculty of that direct mental con consciousness is the sense consciousness, which doesn't really make sense, but that's what they said. Since it enables the arising of that object cognizing mental perception, and that's a sort of one term, object cognizing mental perception, such a sense consciousness immediately preceding it must be its dominant condition. And since it generates that very mental perception as a clearly cognizing experience, such a sense consciousness must be its immediately preceding condition. Question, does such an object cognizing directly perceiving mental consciousness, which is one entity with a very long name, um, apprehend, apprehend an object that has already been perceived by the sense consciousness inducing it, or does it apprehend an object not yet perceived by that preceding sense perception? In the first case, that mental consciousness would be a subsequent cognition. <laughs> um, uh, let's see they're throwing this in here without really explaining it well I'm going to read the rest of the paragraph and then come back in the second case a further question arises if seen in material form does not depend on the presence of eyes there would surely be occasions when even a blind person could see forms so there's two arguments this would be in some texts these two would be presented as objections that, that should be immediately overruled but the first objection is that by definition the second moment of uh, 
of a stream of direct cognition is called a subsequent cognition. And in the, in the hierarchy of cognitive experience, in the world of cognitive experience, hierarchy, subsequent cognitions are below direct cognitions. And this is a fine point that uh, they will hopefully explain later. So I'm just going to briefly say that there's a difference of opinion between different schools on this. And the Galupa school holds that a subsequent cognition has uh, significantly diminished uh, sort of, you might say, persuasive ability when compared to a direct cognition in, in its ability to uh, present the subject with a convincing experience of the object, if that I, makes any sense. Yes. I'm, I'm confused, though, about the, this question. Maybe I'm misunderstanding <clears throat> something, no doubt. But when it says, does the object cognizing directly perceiving mental consciousness so that's saying that is it's saying the directly perceiving mental consciousness. So it's a direct cognition. They're, they're it, raising a contradiction. Right. Okay. So because it seems like this is just an inherently doesn't make sense. The, the, the idea that the, the definition of uh, a direct perceiver is that it's the first moment of cognition of an object. And any subsequent moments of cognition of that object are called subsequent cognizers, but, cognitions. But, but yet then, then in the next sentence where they say in the first case, it's a subsequent cognition, that seems like that's contradictory by definition. It is, it is. They're, contra the they're, okay. they're objecting to the use of the term Direct. uh, directly perceiving. Okay, so they, in, in effect, they have a different view. It, they do. Okay, okay. The, 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 uh, the objector does. Right, okay, thank you. And then it says, uh, in the second case, a further question arises, if seen in material form does not depend on presence. So they presented, in, you know, I said this, this idea that mental consciousness can have a direct uh, cognition of a sense object is controversial because it has these two potential flaws. One, it would it would mean that you're seeing the same object for two cognitive moments in a row and that seeing the same object in two moments in a row means that it's a subsequent cognition which is this uh, way of defining the second moment of a stream of cognition of an object that has less um, it's not direct it's not a that uh, in the galupa system direct cognition is only the first moment of cognition of an object and then and then secondly um they're saying okay if you can perceive directly uh sense objects without them being present because no object lasts for two moments you're seeing you're seeing an object that existed in the prior moment in the current moment, that object doesn't exist, and yet you're seeing it in a, in a direct way. Well, then blind people, how come they can't see? Because they're, you know, they, if you don't need like a real object for, for a direct perception to occur, 
then anybody can, you know, anyway, they're raising these objections and the, uh, the responses thus in arising from the sense consciousness that is its immediately preceding condition, the mental consciousness apprehends a different object. Therefore, a blind person does not see. So they're saying that, no, it's a different object. Phew. I know that was sort of a cliffhanger for many of you. You were upset about that. I could see that. And therefore, a blind person does not see. We're not going to get through all this. Such a consciousness apprehends the next moment of the observed object of the sense consciousness that is its dominant condition. The second moment, not the first moment. Therefore, when there is such a directly perceiving mental consciousness, the fallacy of a blind person seeing forms does not occur. Okay? Three conditions of a sense consciousness. Quickly, uh, they're going to go through three of the four. They're going to not talk about the causal condition. Um, to explain the three conditions necessary for sense consciousness to arise, we may ask, given that consciousnesses are unlike physical things, what other special causes and conditions? So so there's separate cause, sets of causations for physical uh, phenomena phenomena, material phenomena, than there are for cognitive phenomena. When I showed you those long lists of possible types of causes, they are applied differently for matter than they are for mind. The two categories of consciousness, sense and mental, each have particular causing conditions. A sense consciousness has three conditions and a mental consciousness has either two or three. A definition of a condition is that which possess that which assists a cause in producing its result. So it's not the primary cause of a result, but it's an assistant. It's a conspiring partner. Um, for example, the condition of sprinkling water helps a seed give rise to a sprout. What's the cause in that scenario? What's the condition and what's the cause? He says the condition of sprinkling water. The helps seed is the, the cause and the, is the sprinkling cause. is the condition. Thank you. Generally speaking, cause and condition are mutually inclusive. They just have different names. So in some cases, cause and condition are synonymous. And in some cases, they're not. <laughs> just to confuse you. Um, there are four types of conditions. Causal objective, dominant, and immediately preceding. As I went through earlier, <clears throat> Vasubandha says, what are, where are they stated in a sutra? It says there are four conditions, blah, blah, blah. The next paragraph, the definition of the objective condition of a sense consciousness is that which directly and principally gives rise to a sense consciousness bearing an image of the object, i.e. bearing an image of the a phenomena that is is the objective condition. The definition of an observed object of a sense consciousness is that which directly and principally gives rise to a sense consciousness bearing an image similar to itself. I'm going to skip this fine point here and uh, we will revisit this not important topic later. <laughs> um, skipping the next sentence. The definition of the dominant condition of a sense consciousness is that which directly and principally gives rise to a sense consciousness able to apprehend its, 
its object, the eye sense faculty is posited as the uncommon or unique dominant condition of an eye consciousness and the mental faculty uh, so forth. Um, the definition of the immediately preceding condition of a sense consciousness is that which directly and principally gives rise to a sense consciousness that is clear and cognizing in nature. Um, let's see. To illustrate, based on the example of an eye consciousness, its objective condition is a visible form, its dominant condition is the eye sense faculty, and its immediately preceding condition is the prior moment of consciousness attending to a visible form. And he goes through the various uh, types of those, skipping all of that on the next page, 57. So after the long quote, in this way, each of the sense consciousnesses, apprehending forms and so on, arises in dependence on those three conditions. Um, and skipping, uh, this is basically, they go on and on about these conditions over and over. So I'm going to skip these and go to the next section, page 58. And uh, just before the next section, so the little paragraph before the header that says Chittamatra approach, he has a little summarizing paragraph. This explanation of the three conditions is presented in accordance with the standpoint of the Sautrantika school, this way of presenting the three conditions of perception as shared in general as a common position of the Buddhist tenant systems. As for the Vaibhashika tradition's unique view on the topic, which was presented in Vasubandhu's Treasury of Knowledge, i.e. Abhidharma Kosha, it will be explained in a later section. So we'll come back to the Vaibhashikas have a unique take on this perceptual framework. In the Chittamatra school, mind only, their way of positing, you know, so in the mind only, there's no external objects. So, uh, which of the four conditions becomes suspect if there's no external object? You're muted. The objective. Thank you very much. The objective is mind. <laughs> so there's no external object. So it becomes a different situation. So I'm actually going to skip this because this section because that's the essential point of this whole section of the Chittamatra presentation is that there's no object condition and so they have this convoluted way of explaining how does the experience of of the feeling of there being objects separate from the subject occur in a situation where there are no actual external objects The, uh, you know, the mind sees itself as an object, basically, right? Uh, let's see. Then uh, page 60, the proof of past and future lives. Did you guys like this section? The idea is that um, all cognitions have a preceding, uh, immediately preceding condition, which is the immediately preceding uh, moment of cognition of some type of consciousness so therefore you, to posit that upon the uh, uh, what's it called when a baby is produced the uh, inception of a baby 
Conception. Conception, thank you. <laughs> that first moment of conception, um, to say that suddenly consciousness is born there, um, you know, goes against their whole system, is introducing a, a, a non-caused occurrence, the occurrence of a cognition that has no immediately preceding condition. And since they've stated that it's God's law that all cognitions have immediately preceding conditions, therefore there can't be any first moment of uh, cognition at conception that does not have an immediately preceding condition of the prior existence of that um, uh, consciousness. And that's the crux of this convoluted uh, presentation on past lives. Oh, there was one other aspect of it. Um, That's basically it. Okay, conceptual and non-conceptual. This is the most fun topic. So this is part three, or chapter three of this part one. It's called conceptual and non-conceptual. It's on page 65, which has no number on the actual page, but it's after the blank page, as it's immediately preceding page. Tough crowd here tonight. <laughs> the immediately preceding page. Generally speaking, the Tibetan term usually rendered as conceptuality is chokpa. You don't pronounce the R. Uh, and it has multiple senses in translations of the early Buddhist texts. For example, the Abhidharma Kosha says inquiry and analysis are coarse and subtle. So here are different types of conceptuality. While enge when engaging the object inquiry, and they give the Sanskrit, first the Tibetan tokpa, and then the Sanskrit vitarka, as is a mental factor that engages it in a coarse way. And analysis in Tibetan chupa, for some strange reason, DPY is pronounced as CH. And, don't ask me why, <laughs> but that's the truth. Chupa, and in Sanskrit, vichara, is a mental factor that engages in it in a subtle way. So there's all these different uh, types of conceptuality. In uh, Maitreya's, one of his, uh, Maitreya's five texts called the Five Dharmas, the one called Distinguishing the Middle from Extremes, it says the conceptual constructions, and here we have kuntok, um, all conceptuality, kuntok, uh, in Sanskrit, parikalpa, which is very close to uh, one of the three natures, parikalpata. The conceptual constructs that pertain to the unreal consist of minds and mental factors of the three realms. And so this is from the Yogacara traditional point of view where uh, minds and mental factors are not 
real entities. They're periculpata. They're imaginary. Minds and mental factors that are mistaken and having a dualistic appearance, they, they appear as being separate things and are included within the levels of any of the three realms. Three realms being desire, form, and formless are said to be conceptual constructions. Dignaga says direct perception is free from conceptualization. Conceptualization attaches a name, a type, and so on. So we have these different functions of conceptuality. Naming, identifying types, and so on. Dignaga defines conceptualization, which is in Tibetan Tokpa, in Sanskrit Kalpana. And if you, you might notice that here, the same Tibetan is given with a different Sanskrit than it was up above on the page, where Tokpa, R-T-O-G, you don't pronounce the R, is, tra is the translation of Vitarka. Here it's the translation of Kalpana, <clears throat> which is uh, definitely confusing, but that's what they like to do. Dignaga defines conceptualization in terms of those cognitions that apprehend their objects by way of applying a linguistic name or type, a class, to a subject. In other words, the object is qualified by some form of universal or as some form of universal of these different senses or, or ways. We will use conceptuality here in accordance with how it is defined in the Buddhist epistemological treatises of Dignaga, Dharmakirti, and their buddies. This usage of the term also occurs in the sutras, for example, in Descent into Lanka Sutra or Lanka Avatara Sutra. The Buddha says, Mahamati, he's the main interlocutor with the Buddha. Uh, conceptual thought is what finds expression in words such as this is that, this is this, this is that, elephant, horse, chariot, etc. Thus, a conceptualization is that which illuminates the warrant for applying a term to an object as when one thinks it is this kind and not another. <laughs> the use of the term warrant is pretty odd, but uh, conceptualization is that which illuminates the sort of reasoning or uh, justification for applying a particular term to a, a particular object. As explained above, sense consciousness is non-conceptual or mental consciousness may be either conceptual or non-conceptual. Certain types of consciousness directly cognize whatever object they engage. Um, and based on this, they're said to be non-conceptual. So there's a little definition of what is non-conceptual uh, direct consciousness. Why is it called direct? It engages its object. Um, they directly cognize their object. They don't do it through a mental image or through a word or a term or anything. But when we have a visual sense consciousness of a color, it's direct, boom. Also, there are many types of consciousness that cannot perceive the object directly, but apprehended by way of taking as their observed object something that partially resembles the actual object. Such types of cognition are referred to as conceptual. 
So observed object here would be what Cynthia referred to earlier as the aspect, which is the image that, uh, or the uh, replication of the object that appears in the sensual sense, rather, sensuous, sensus, sense uh, faculties. Um, such types of cognition are referred to as conceptual. An example is a cognition that remembers yesterday's meal. Although yesterday's meal does not di appear directly to a memory occurring now, <clears throat> it doesn't appear directly, meaning non-conceptually. There is an appearance in the memory, in that memory that resembles yesterday's meal. It's probably cold by now and a little stale, but it resembles yesterday's meal. And it is via this appearance that yesterday's meal is taken as the object of that cognition and is remembered. Furthermore, although an eye consciousness seen a vase is not conceptual, when the eyes are closed after having seen the vase, the appearance of the vase persists in the mental consciousness, and such a mental, mental consciousness is conceptual. The very next moment. So we're going deeply into types and, and methodologies of conceptuality. As the Dharmakirti says, a cognition connected to concepts does not have a clear appearance of the object the way uh, direct sense consciousness does. And any cognition that has a clear appearance of the object, such as sense cognition, is non-conceptual. When an object appears to a consciousness mixed with an object universal, then it is a conceptual consciousness of a cognition directly perceives its object unmixed with the universal, then it's non-conceptual. Further ways of describing this difference between conceptual and non-conceptual. In his text, Dharmakirti gives a very clear account of the difference between these two. Conceptual cognition is a mental consciousness it arises without depending on the proximity of a causally efficient object through the latent potencies for that conceptualization and apprehends an object that is not restricted to a sense faculty and it does so through some relation to a sense experience either together or separately. We saw this quote earlier actually and Cynthia asked is the implication that all uh, conceptuality is based on sense experience and the answer was yes conceptual minds do not rely on the proximity of an observed object's causal capacity but arise owing to the power of past habituations or latent potencies of language-based thought processes dharmakirti again says an attribute an attribute possessor the relation between the attribute and the attribute possessor and customary conventions, such as uh, idioms and terms and so forth, having apprehended these separately, an object is cognized in that way by associating them and not otherwise. If one understands the attribute, the attribute possessor, their relationship and the customary conventions posited them by associating them, one apprehends the attribute possessor as being qualified by some attribute. So conceptuality is able to think about things as having attributes, as things as being, uh, as possessing 
or being equipped with attributes, such as the case in the expression staff holder, <laughs> which is such a funny term that they use this. But I guess that was a common job back then is somebody to hold your staff. And so it's a descriptive term that uh, is both uh, sort of a name of a, a job and uh, a title that a person would have, and that's descriptive of what they do. That cognition does not happen otherwise because one does not have that cognition if one does not cognize the things, the attribute and the attribute possessor, their relationship and the conventions. Here the following kinds of cognition are recognized as conceptual. Those that involve predication, such as a thing and its property, fire is hot, the relation between horns and the horned animal, the idea that there's a, a, a horned animal possesses horns. Um, and relations involving customary conventions, such as the notion of a chief and the chief's deputies, there being a relationship between objects that is totally projected onto them by conceptual mind. You could say that. Uh, you know, a flower consists of its petals, and that's totally a conceptual way of uh, analyzing or experiencing a flower as being like uh, consisting of petals and stamens and pistils and so forth. Um, it's totally a conceptual fabrication. In brief, all cognitions that combine objects through mutual association involving an attribute and attribute possessor are said to be conceptual mental cognitions. So to say, a flower has flower petals and pistil and stamen. It's totally conceptual because you've, you've used this idea of there being a flower, which is a conceptual generality, is a, a general idea, and that it can have different parts or attributes. It's, it's totally a conceptual fabrication. Whereas the visual consciousness just sees shape and color and takes it in directly. Uh, so then there's the long quote that basically uh, repeats the same and not skipping that. A non-conceptual sense consciousness arises from its three conditions having been met. The object condition, the dominant condition, the immediately preceding condition, whether one wants it to arise or not, it just happens automatically, right? The eyes are open, something's in front of it, you see it. For example, when the three conditions of an eye consciousness seen a cow have been met and that eye consciousness arises, even if one were to deliberately try to think it's a horse, <laughs> one will still see the cow. Conversely, with respect to a thought conceiving something as a cow, if one were to deliberately think it to be otherwise, it's possible to change the thought of a cow. So another attribute of conceptual cognition is that it's fickle. Um, such a difference between conceptual and cognition, non-conceptual cognition is stated by Dharmakirti. I will skip the quote to the next section. In general, there is the way in which conceptual thought is defined in the manner of the early, earlier quotation from the compendium by, by Dignaga. Direct perception is free from conceptualization that attaches a name, a type, and so on. And then also Dharmakirti's 
text which says any consciousness that apprehends a linguistic referent is a conceptual cognition of that object. So a linguistic referent is, is uh, something that can be referred to by language, such as the naming of parts or attributes or qualities. Consciousness is said to be a conceptual cognition regarding an object if the consciousness that apprehends the object takes that object's universal or linguistic referent as its observed object. So um, here we have the use of this framework of the different aspects of an object. There's in this scheme, the terminology is appearing object, referent object, and apprehended or engaged object. And here um, they're saying apprehending. So the apprehending is the cognitive discernment. Cognitive discernment. And both conceptual and non-conceptual cognitions apprehend their object. A consciousness is said to be a conceptual cognition regarding an object if the consciousness that apprehends the object takes that object's universal or linguistic referent as its observed object. And um, observed object is what is it that actually uh, appears to the mind when the cognition happens. And um, so let's say there's a flower in front of you and it appears, it's, uh, appears in your sense consciousness as a blue flower and your sense consciousness apprehends the blue flower the mental, first moment of mental cognition apprehends the same appearing object of the blue flower, which is the um, engaged object, and it, 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 it apprehends it non-conceptually, and a conceptual cognition that the next moment after that is, um, it's, sort of external object is a conceptual referent of flower. And uh, I was trying to sort of meld the two systems languages and I think I didn't do a very good job. So let's, let me stick with their language. Consciousness is said to be a conceptual cognition regarding an object, so that's the so-called uh, outer phenomena. If the consciousness that apprehends the object, um, so if the consciousness that apprehends, that cognizes it, that understands it, that experiences it, takes that object's universal or linguistic referent as its observed object. So the observed object is in the middle between the actual object and the um, apprehended object. So you have a blue flower out in front of you, and that's the object, the external object. And then the observed 
uh, what they're calling the observed object is what actually appears to the mind and what appears to the sense consciousness is a replica of the blue flower and what appears to the first moment of mental consciousness is the sense consciousness of the blue flower and then what appears to the mental conscious and so in each of those cases cognition is apprehending uh, what do they say is apprehending the actual flower through the replication of that flower in the sense faculty right in both moment one and two moment one is sense cognition moment two is mental direct cognition in moment three the um, conceptual cognition is apprehending the blue flower through observing the generic idea of blue flower. Uh, Derek? Yes, sir. Oh, sorry, I should be. Maybe I should. Um, is this a you're technical not, you're description? Not a, you're not an appearing object. <laughs> there you go. Now you're an appearing object. Is this a technical description of what was earlier called mixing? Like it? Like, yes. This is the main point. Did did I skip it? I thought we we're coming to the mixing. Oh, I thought. Well, I think it just maybe it teased mixing earlier, or maybe I'm just remembering it now. Shake, shaken, not stirred, right? Right. Because <laughs> and, and so what you're saying is that there is a third moment for the mixing. It's really kind of. Oh, you, you, interweaving. The mixing doesn't happen until the third moment, which is right. conceptual. Right. Okay. Right. So uh, I don't know if everybody got that, but what happened in moments one and two is that the actual object is is um, is uh, the apprehended object. The apprehended object when there's a direct perceptual cognition whether it's sense or mental is the so-called actual outer object and it's apprehended through its appearing or observed object which is the replication of that uh, sense phenomena in the sense faculty so the blue flower the, the sense the visual sense apparatus creates a replica of a blue flower in its neural network let's say today we would say and the sense uh, consciousness sees that flower through that image which is a, a perfect replica of the, the actual flower and then the first moment of mental cognition sees the same appearing object the appearing object is what actually appears to the uh the knower the apprehender the cognizer what appears to that is not the outer object the outer object casts its aspect its image its replication into the sense system and then the apprehender the cognizer, the mind, whether it's a sense mind or a, a mental mind, cognizes the outer object directly by, and we say directly when the the image is the same as the outer object. 
And in the third moment, the mind has extrapolated that experience and associated it with past experiences of flowers and says, I'm seeing a blue flower. And so the mental consciousness then has what Eric is saying mixed. It mixes the idea, the gen generic, generally characterized phenomena of blue flower. It mixes that with the experience of the out of the so-called outer object and it is no longer experiencing the appearing uh, it's no longer it's appearing object the middle object you know you have the outer object and then you have the appearing object is what is in the sense system and then the apprehended object is like in the in the cerebral cortex let's say for Right, and so for the sense consciousness, um, the cerebral cortex is is viewing the appearing object in the sense faculty. In that, uh, in the first moment, the sense consciousness in the back of the head is seeing the the image in the sense system. In the second moment, the the cerebral cortex is seeing the image of the flower in the in the visual sense system, but in the third moment, the uh, the mental cognition becomes conceptual, and it replaces the observed object. The observed object is the middle object between the outer and the the perceiver, the subject. It replaces the actual aspect or image of the outer object with a conceptual idea of a blue flower. And so then it, it, as Eric is saying, we mix the general idea of blue flower with the outer object that we're referring to by virtue of that general idea of blue flower. So the general idea of a blue flower is a conceptual object, uh, object of a conceptual cognition, and it refers to the outer object. Did that make any sense? We'll go. It'll come. It'll come up a number of times, over and over, and gradually become clearer than I made it. Hopefully. Uh, let's see. So we are. We read the second quote, right? Dharmakirti says any consciousness that expresses a linguistic referent, is that where we were? Is conce conceptual cognition of that object. Consciousness is said to be conceptual cognition regarding an object. If the consciousness that apprehends, the, the, the consciousness is the apprehender, the object, is the outer phenomena takes the object's universal or linguistic referent as its observed object, which is the intermediary thing that we actually see in our mind. In the case of a, a visual sense co cognition, we see an exact replica of the outer object. And we say that that's direct because it's a perfect replica. It hasn't been distorted. If your eyes work properly, it hasn't been distorted by, uh, preconceptions of like whether you like or dislike blue or flowers or whatever. Uh, let's see. 
also, what is conceptual cognition? Conceptual cognition is an expressive cognition. A conceptual cognition is one that has an appearance that is suitable to be associated with words. Conceptual cognition is a cognition whose phenomenal content appears or is apprehended to be associable with language. <clears throat> Skipping the next sentence, going to the next paragraph. So the definition of a conceptual cognition is a construing awareness <clears throat> that apprehends word and referent as suitable to be associated. So a conceptual cognition is a construing awareness. That's uh, another word for mixing. It's an awareness that mixes, construes, i.e. misconstrues, um, by apprehending the label with the outer object. So we have this idea that there are blue flowers, and we see a blue flower, and our visual consciousness rec registers that, or, or the first moment of our mental consciousness registers the actual blue flower and then suddenly we've uh, trans been transported into the world of blue conceptual blue flowers oh i'm seeing a blue flower we've generalized them the significance of the phrase suitable to be associated in this definition is explained as follows. Some conceptual cognitions, such as one in the mind of a proverbial infant, take as their objects either the object universal or the word universal, but they do not take a combination of both as their object. This is a little fine point that the authors are getting into that beings such as uh, infants who have not yet merged the sound of words with the objects that words refer to and they just repeat sounds without knowing what they're saying as well as non-human creatures who don't have language that uh, um, creates a system of reference to outer objects they have no way of matching the linguistic term and the actual object. Um, so this is just a little fine point of, uh, of this little fine pointed way of saying that even infants and animals, even though they haven't merged the words, the linguistic term with the referent, they still have conceptuality without words. So to some extent we associate uh, linguistic um, identification with conceptuality and one of these quotes uh, said that any Dharmakirti said any consciousness that apprehends a linguistic referent is a conceptual cognition but he didn't say that there are also um, consciousnesses that don't apprehend a linguistic referent that are still conceptual and that's babies and animals still have a level of conceptuality where they encounter objects in their world in their world and they know those objects from prior experience and they label them non-linguistically they categorize them and they experience them then con uh, conceptually 
It's on the top of page 70, but they do not take a combination of both as their object. Therefore, such cognitions do not apprehend word and referent as associated. Nevertheless, those cognitions apprehend them as suitable to be associated, which is a clunky way of saying, nevertheless, those cognitions are still conceptual, where they've mixed the image with the referent, with the actual object. Alternatively, some texts say that what is meant by word referent is the mere universal that is apprehended by the mind, and its meaning should not be understood as the separate terms word. This, I'm not even going to talk about that. Okay, so we're out of time, so let's see if we can all remember where we are. Do you know where you are? <laughs> uh, we need a post-it note. Here's a post on it. So on page 70, first full paragraph, which is the twofold categorization of conceptual cognitions, those that concur with their objects and those that don't. And this is what I mentioned earlier, when we have concepts of things that don't exist. But I don't want to keep you too late because we're over time. And we've been going at it for a long time. So thank you very much conceptually speaking. <laughs> Any comments, last comments or questions or thoughts? I'm just having to think this is going to take longer for another time, but about the other lives, emptiness of persons yet preceding mind into a new birth and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Can something come out of nothing? Can consciousness arise out of nothing? Or can consciousness arise from matter? Oh, that was the other part of that preceding life thing is they said, can, uh, can uh, consciousness arise from the matter that's involved in conception? Or can consciousness be uh, uh, endowed in the, into the... Um, the first moment of conception by the mother. Can the mother's consciousness sort of break off part of the mother's consciousness and bloop, go into the baby? And they dismiss they that. They said no. As, yeah. They said no, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, but that's the way that uh, rebirth is, is supported in the Buddhist tradition, plus that the Buddha said so. <laughs> and it's one of the more controversial aspects of the tradition, but it's sort of a key part to the whole scheme. Anyway, Neil. Uh, sorry. Um, so I was just struggling with the notion of a direct uh, mental sense consciousness. Um, I'm not sure I've, you know, ever had one of those. And if I had, the minute I recognize it, it becomes conceptual, right? So I'm just trying to figure out what's the significance of that distinction. That's a great question. So according to this tradition, you're having it uh, every moment, basically. Um, every time you look at it, it's right. Our ability to uh, be conscious, to consciously experience single moments of our stream of momentary consciousness is zero. 
until you reach some very advanced stage of meditation and understanding at which point you can then experience mind moments and then you can experience that flash of mental direct perception but um, so, so is this exposition more about building a kind of a logical construct and then actually pointing out something that we should be utilizing well the 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 significant part is that then it provides a, a basis for the progression of of understanding and experience of emptiness the true nature of phenomena um, going from a conceptual idea to a direct non-conceptual experience and uh, and so that's the that's uh, the main technique in the in many traditions way of working with uh, emptiness actually sorry all individuals in working with the idea and in, in trying to experience emptiness we start with a conceptual understanding of emptiness and then through the uh, process of engaging with emptiness in ever more subtle conceptual ways and through sustained meditation practice it's possible for that experience to become direct non-conceptual and that's the only way that it becomes a, a, a transformative experience and so that's the real significance of that mental direct perception is that um, that's what actually liberates us is a mental direct perception of emptiness and uh and, and as well as like do, do we actually genuinely experience our sense experiences you know or otherwise they would sort of be cut off from us and we would be like two people we'd be our senses would be like operating and we would be like wondering what's going on <laughs> You know, it's like how well, did the a fairly accurate description generally anyway. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, but it's a it's a it's a sort of controversial one and a hard one to get at and uh as well as a very profound one. Mary Beth. Is it kind of like every like every time we label something, which I know is already mixed, so we're like already like a few away, but like we've shut down an opportunity to experience emptiness uh that kind of what we're doing just yeah you've sh you've shut down the <clears throat> opportunity to experience emptiness in a direct non non-conceptual way but uh you haven't necessarily shut down the opportunity to understand emptiness in a conceptual way um, you know, and we so, have another opportunity in the very next moment to try it again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so by observing that phenomena change, we we extrapolate that they have no fixed substance to them. And so they have no intrinsic identity. And, you know, so you can sort of get flashes of direct non-conceptual experience of impermanence. And when you've trained your mind to understand well how can things change things can only change if they're not 
uh, if, if they are not not empty. Things can only change if they have essence, unchanging essence. So therefore they must be empty. And so you perceive change and that sh should trigger um, a reminder of emptiness. Can I, I know it's, it's late, but um, I find even at a gross level, even if I, I never really see a flower directly, I find studying this still has helped me over the years just notice the gross labeling of everyday life, like mm -hmm. sitting and, and having this view of sitting meditation where I'm just like, that person's annoying rather than that person is doing X, Y, and Z and I'm labeling. I mean, the thing I think we've all gone through. Like, I find that this is that, and that has helped my life, just having this training, even if I never see anything directly. That's great. Thank you so much for raising that. I, I jumped, you know, to the ultimate purpose of this, which is to understand emptiness. But the relative purpose is that we live through this filter all the time, and it perverts our behavior, and it creates suffering for self and others. Mm -hmm. And we see that when we meditate, we're just like exuding, extruding <laughs> the mixing of ideas with experience, you know, why like did they do that? Radical. It feels like I know I'm going in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. By seeing that process happening, you're paving the way to seeing the that we're doing that same process with with the presumption that things exist in the way that I experience them and think they exist. Thank you very much for raising that. So let's conclude. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed going through this Thank with you. you. Take Bye. care. See Bye. you soon.